Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Those battling substance use problems have been struggling during the pandemic, particularly with opioid use disorder. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with the Chief Medical Officer of Virginia's Medicaid program about what payers can do to meet the needs of patients who need treatment. Dr. Chathan Bacciaretti is the co-author of a commentary in the March issue of the American Journal of Managed Care, titled Payer Strategies to Ensure Access to Care for Individuals with Opioid Use Disorder During COVID-19. The commentary offers four things that payers can do to make sure that patients get the treatment they need and what's at risk if they don't. The numbers tell a story. More than 81,000 people died of drug overdoses in the United States between June 2019 and May 2020, largely driven by illicit fentanyl. Compared with the 12-month period ending in June 2019, synthetic opioid overdose deaths increased by 38% by May 2020. You and your co-author wrote a commentary in the March issue of the American Journal of Managed Care about four strategies payers should implement to make sure those with opioid use disorder have access to care during COVID-19. And you note that access was improving before the pandemic. It still wasn't easy, though, for many patients and their families, especially in certain parts of the country, such as rural areas. Can you describe the four strategies you outlined in the article? Yeah, happy to. First of all, thank you so much for um, the opportunity to speak a little bit about um, our recommendations and some of the work we're doing. So uh, for folks out there, my name is Chetan Bacharedi. I'm a practicing physician and the chief medical officer at Virginia Medicaid. And once a week, um, I'm lucky to have the opportunity to put on my physician hat and practice as a primary care physician and to deliver addiction care to to patients in in enrichment at Virginia Commonwealth University. And so, you know, we had done a lot of work in Virginia and particularly in Virginia Medicaid really since 2016 to transform um, our addiction program, our addiction benefit. The first thing we did is is really uh, uh, improve uh, payment rates for addiction providers. And from 2016 to 2018, we're able to double treatment rates. So very proud of that. And then in 2019, we expanded Medicaid, uh, really expanded access to coverage to over 400,000 low-income Virginians. And we're able to, uh, again, double access to treatment, particularly um, to medications for those with opioid use disorder. And so it was really with that uh, foundation um, uh, that uh, we encountered COVID-19 in the COVID-19 pandemic that's really uh, disrupted so, so many lives, um, certainly in Virginia, in the United States and across the world. And so as COVID-19 was unfolding, as we were grappling with the scope of this pandemic, uh, we started to realize that, you know, not only was it a, a virus that we all had to contend with and the fear of the virus, but um, some of the uh, evidence-based really important policies that were put into place also had um, implications for uh, another crisis, another epidemic uh, that we had been dealing with, the opioid crisis and really the overdose crisis. And so uh, as we started to see these forces um, come together, we started to understand that uh, our, some of our most vulnerable uh, Medicaid members, patients, uh, would really be suffering during this time from a mix of, again, um, fear of the virus, economic recession, social isolation, psychological distress, 
and access to care. And so we asked ourselves the question in March, you know, how can we ensure access to care for our most vulnerable, particularly during COVID-19, during this really seismic disruption where people need care uh, now more than ever. And so the recommendations in uh, our article are really reflective of the actions that we took in Virginia Medicaid. And so the way that the article is framed is what can payers do? Um, what must they do? What can they do and what must they do to ensure access to care for individuals with opioid use disorder during COVID-19? And we know that payers can do this because we've uh, been able to do this within our own organization, within Virginia Medicaid in a really rapid fashion. So, so number one, uh, payers um, can and should make it easy for patients to receive evidence-based medications for opioid use disorder. When I say uh, medications for opioid use disorder, I mean both the opioid agonist therapies and the opioid antagonist therapies. So methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Um, as a clinician, um, I, you know, in particular, I have experience with buprenorphine and naltrexone. And I'll really um, highlight buprenorphine in particular. I think it, um, and, and I mentioned this, we mentioned this in our article, it, it's particularly potent and important to remove barriers, prior authorization, counseling requirements, in-network restrictions, co-pays, dose limits, you name it, any restrictions on buprenorphine are really a restriction you know, too far because of how life-saving um, and effective that this medication is um, and, and how safe it is. And again, I have experience both as a policymaker, as a researcher, and as a physician. So I really know firsthand what a difference it makes in the lives of, of, of my patients. And you know, not only that, but we also have research that this really works. And so one paper in particular um, that we mentioned was one by Tammy Mark, where they looked at in Medicare, what happens when you remove the prior authorization for buprenorphine naloxone? Uh, uh, you know, and what they found from 2012 to 2017 is that it doubled treatment rates, it increased access to care. And it also significantly reduced emergency room visits and hospitalizations. And from a payer perspective, this is really the sweet spot, right? Because at the end of the day, the role of payers and you know, much of the utilization and network management techniques have to do with nudging providers, patients, really guiding them towards high value care and away from low value care. And so in this case, um, really buprenorphine and all medications for opioid use disorder are uh, considered high value care and make a tremendous difference in access to care and really in saving lives. So that was recommendation one, reduce and remove barriers to, for patients to receive medications for opioid use disorder. Number two, increase access to care by reimbursing virtual visits. And so one of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic has been the explosion in virtual care, in, in telemedicine, in telehealth. We're really moving from our traditional model of care to a technology-enabled virtual model of care that I think will be, I know will be much better. And we're going to continue to learn and grow. But we know already, I know already, you know, as a clinician and speaking with other clinicians around the country who've been able to deliver um, uh, addiction care via, via telemedicine, audio-only and audiovisual modalities that it really is a remarkable way to expand access to care. In my clinic, I'll just give one example. During the crisis, uh, prior to the crisis, we had a no-show rate uh, around 20%. Uh, during the crisis, through telehealth, we had a no-show rate of 3%. Um, and so you can see just in that one small example, right, that one clinic, um, uh, how telemedicine 
and virtual care can really increase access to care during normal, normal times and particularly during a pandemic. One of the things we're piloting uh, in, in uh, my particular health system is also a virtual bridge clinic. So as individuals are transitioning, as they're particularly vulnerable to overdose, uh, we can provide telemedicine services um, uh, as a bridge um, to more long-term care. And so these models of care, they work. And yes, we have more to learn. Yes, there are outstanding questions about virtual care more broadly, uh, but we know that access to care, particularly for those with opioid use disorder, can be life-saving. And so even in this instance, even today, the benefits of virtual care for opioid use disorder far outweigh any risk. And so that's number two, pay for virtual care for opioid use disorder. Number three is leverage real-time data for targeted outreach at vulnerable moments. And so you've heard me say and, and allude to this a little bit earlier, but what we know from the literature, um, both the epidemiology, but what I also know from my experience as a, as a provider, as a clinician, is that for a given patient with opioid use disorder, their vulnerability really changes over time. If they're not engaged in care, if they're just after an overdose, just after they visit the emergency department, they're at extreme risk for um, overdosing again. The same can be said when they're transitioning from residential um, uh, facility or when they're transitioning from incarceration, being released into the community from jail or prison. Uh, the, the risk of overdose really skyrockets during that uh, vulnerable time. And so we can use real-time data. So in Virginia Medicaid, we use pharmacy data and we use emergency room data to tell if pharmacy data, if someone's on buprenorphine or naltrexone and they have a gap in treatment of seven days or longer, that will trigger an alert and a care coordinator will reach out, really understand what's going on and encourage them to continue with their medications for opioid use disorder. And if they're having challenges, they'll help them troubleshoot, whether that's home delivery of medications or prior authorization or something else. Similarly, through the state's health information exchange, uh, payers receive you know, alerts from the emergency department. We call ours the emergency department care coordination um, uh, program. And through that, they know exactly when a patient comes into the emergency room uh, with uh, an opioid use disorder or an overdose related um, uh, visit. And, and when that happens, that triggers an alert. And the care coordinators, again, work really hard to engage that particular individual uh, particularly when they're so, so vulnerable uh, to overdose um, and adverse outcomes. The fourth uh, and final recommendation that can be, again, implemented tomorrow is really to pay providers to maintain robust networks of addiction care. And, and I'm saying this, and we're making the recommendation based our, on our own experience in Virginia Medicaid. Uh, in 2016, uh, we had pretty minimal reimbursement for addiction care, that changed almost overnight when we implemented our addiction transformation and we increased reimbursement rates to Medicare uh, and commercial levels. And with that, we saw a more than doubling of our network overnight. It wasn't that um, all of a sudden there were new providers. It was that uh, there was really latent capacity and we were able to optimize and leverage that latent capacity when we were able to provide more appropriate reimbursement rates. And when we were able to do that, the results are quite remarkable. When you're able to uh, pay your providers, you know, for us in Virginia Medicaid, it led to a doubling uh, in terms of access to care. And so cannot um, really emphasize this enough that when it comes to high value care, we must pay our providers for high value care. And, and once you do that, the results are really remarkable. 
You noted that in your article that most addiction treatment centers operate in a fee-for-service environment. Right. And given the magnitude of the problem that we're discussing, whether it's opioid use or any other substance use disorder in America, is it time to start thinking about alternative payment models that should or could be created? You mentioned the idea in your article of payers, uh, you know, advancing payments to the providers on a per member uh, per month basis. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, happy to. Thank you so much for that for that question. And you know, we've learned so so much. Uh, over this past year. And one of the things we learned and really became obvious to us, well, a couple of things, I'm going to name two things. So one, and we've all known this, but I think we've become much more aware of it. And the, um, uh, and I, and I say the, the, the platform and the, the, the desire and the, um, uh, the tides of change are here. And that's really around equity. And so I'm going to say one thing that we've learned for sure is that, there is so much inequity in our healthcare system and in health across our country um, in particular. And of course there's inequity across our society, but it feels, you know, as a physician, it feels even more galling when I see it within our own healthcare system. Um, so that's one. The second is we've also understood how fragile our healthcare delivery system is, you know, whether that's surges from COVID-19, whether that's primary care practices going under, or, you know, in our case here, whether that's addiction treatment providers that are shuttering. And, and we heard so many stories of that, particularly early on in the pandemic, where simply people stopped coming to the doctor. And of course, that meant worse outcomes for them. But that also meant that once um, uh, folks started coming back or, or were ready to come back to the doctor, there was no provider for them because they had shuttered, because they had lost staff, um, because they had moved on to a different, larger practice, right? And that's that's really important lesson for all of us, that if we really care about our healthcare system, particularly our primary care system, uh, and I'm including addiction care, behavioral health care in that as well, if we really care about it, then we need to ensure that it's resilient to um, you know, the ebbs and flows of uh, economic crisis. Um, you know, our health is too fragile, it's too precious um, to be susceptible, to be vulnerable um, to, to the tides of economic change. And so, one way to do that is really by focusing on value. And when I say that, I say that to mean not only should a value-based payment model be, um, it should really be grounded in uh, resiliency, flexibility for the provider and the patient, and it should really be grounded in equity as well, right? And so when we talk about value, we're not just talking about you know, making sure people get the right medication. Yes, that's super important. Obviously that's important, but we're also talking about people being treated with dignity. And when we talk about addiction care, this is really important. We're talking about evidence-based care that's individualized and patient-centered, that's low threshold, high retention to really meet that threshold, that bar for uh, addiction care, patient-centered addiction care. We have to be flexible in our financing models to support that because right now the fee for service model does not support that model of care. And we've tried to do this in small ways in Virginia Medicaid, and certainly we have much more room to grow, but you know, really to, at the end of the day, to design care around people, around our patients with equity, access and care at the center, we really have to be thinking in more novel ways about how we pay. And I think value-based payment is a really important part uh, of that um, with this caveat that we really need to be um, in, uh, intentional about how we define value through the lens of equity, care, and access. 
And then lastly, excuse me, with the new administration, are there changes you would like to see as they relate to efficiently helping patients with this disorder, as well as, you know, sustaining providers? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. So um, this administration has showed that they they really want to do the right thing when it comes to COVID-19. They really want to do the right thing when it comes to the health of our nation and our country. So it's very exciting to see. And, you know, there's there's so much that, um, you know, there, it's a new administration, right? So they're still figuring things out and there's much more that we'll hear from them. But I think at the very least, it, it's really starting with these four, right? Um, and, and really encouraging not just Medicaid programs, but all payers to remove restrictions on medications for opioid use disorder. Again, you know, it's when I first became chief medical officer uh, at Virginia Medicaid, this was one of my first actions because I knew it was the right thing to do and I knew it would make a difference. But, you know, I had the benefit of clinical experience, um, you know, research and policy experience. So I knew it was the right thing to do. And, um, and I think we're all starting to learn and, and gain evidence for what it does when you actually do this. It improves access and it saves lives. And so that's, that's one. The second is, you know, reimbursing virtual visits and, and really thinking about this, not just in terms of telemedicine, but optimal care, leveraging data and paying providers um, uh, to maintain ro robust networks of care. The last thing I'll say here, I think is really important is that, and this comes to designing care around people. What we know about the overdose crisis is that most overdose deaths occur during these vulnerable transition moments. And so if we really are serious, if we really want to be effective in terms of addressing the overdose crisis, we have to destigmatize care for opioid use disorder. We have to remove restrictions, you know, whether that's the X waiver, whether that's prior authorization on medication for opioid use disorder. We have to destigmatize uh, this illness and this condition um, and really put people at the center and really care for them during transitions, whether that's from an emergency department a residential treatment center or jail or prison. And if we start to do that, if we design care and systems around people, then I think we have a fighting chance uh, of really um, addressing the overdose crisis and really saving people's lives. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all about here. Um, payers, patients, providers, policymakers, we're here to you know, make a better society, improve the health and well-being of the most vulnerable members of society. And these are four small ways that we can do that. Um, but a, and, and so if we, we can start here and then we can really uh, come up with, with more solutions than these four about how we really design care around people and, um, and save lives. For all of us at AGMC, thanks for listening. For more about this issue, visit agmc.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at agmc.com or follow us on Twitter at agmc underscore journal. And if you like Managed Carecast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.